Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Celeste Stein Show. I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein, and I want to make sure that wherever you are and wherever you might be listening to our show today, that you please like, share, and subscribe if you're interested in learning more about important news of the day, self-help topics, and music that's good for the soul. We'd like to remind you that this is an open forum and there is time in today's live show for questions and comments. If you'd like to give us a call, please dial into the show today free of charge at 1-888-627-6008. That number again is 888-627-6008. Or you may also also reach us today at 323-744-4831. And please feel free to join in on today's program if you're interested in weighing in on today's topic on real estate investing. As we begin, we're going to focus in today on a topic that many people who are trying to build their wealth are thinking about, and that is real estate. We're going to look at whether you should be thinking about buying or selling real estate right now, or if you should hold on to any property you may have. We also want to examine whether you should be thinking about buying a home during the pandemic if you are currently renting. Now, today's guest is a mortgage and housing industry expert. He's a speaker and the author of The Complete Guide to Home Ownership, Buy Your First Home Today. I would like to welcome John Mallett to our show today. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you bet, Celeste. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks. And I wanted to just start by asking you about uh, today's market and the, the conditions. It seems like it's a seller's market out there today, uh, but I'm going to let you elaborate on what's actually going on out there in the real estate market today. Well, that's a great question. The first, uh, it's interesting that uh, the um, average time a, a listing or a home is on the market is 1.7 months. And uh, to be at equilibrium, in other words, for supply to equal demand, it's got to be six months. In some areas, it's as little as 45 days. And uh, generally speaking, a lot of homes that are being sold are being sold for uh, anywhere from 105 to 110% over asking price. Wow. (laughs) The market is pretty hot right now. All right. So um, I keep hearing stories, especially in my community. We live in uh, Middle Tennessee, and we keep hearing the housing values are just skyrocketing and that they're not staying on the market very long. In fact, the last time I checked in our our area, um, there were only 21 houses in terms of inventory on the market. And that may have something to do with the fact that Amazon is building a new humongous uh, fulfillment center here in the Mount Juliet area of Tennessee. So um, we know that that's probably uh, a reason why we have a lot of people coming into this area and and looking for new homes. So that might be slightly different from the average, but as you just said, the numbers are, 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 are up right now for people who are selling their homes. So um, would you like to elaborate at all as to what might be going on there within the market? Why uh, are, are housing prices uh, being driven up? Yeah, that's, that's uh, the main the main reason right now is simply that, that demand is outstripping supply. And when we use the word outstripping, 
uh, from an uh, economic point of view, it means that it's that demand is so much greater than supply. It's going to take a while for supply to to catch up. And uh, basically, right now in the United States, we're short by four million homes wow. that need to be built in order to establish some kind of equilibrium. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't that you don't want to buy a home or that, that now is not the time to do that. It's just that you've got to have a strategy that will match whatever is happening right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the problems I'm hearing from people in, in our area is that, well, I can go ahead and sell and I can get all this money, yay, for selling my house right now, but where am I going to go? <laughs> so right. exactly. what, what, what strategies? You just mentioned you better have a plan. What, what strategies would you recommend? Yeah, yeah, that's a really key. Well, it depends if you're a first-time home buyer, if you're, if you're a current homeowner. Let's just say you're a first-time home buyer. Or somebody that, that even has a home that uh, they want to sell that they're not really comfortable in. You know, I like to go to a little bit deeper level and uh, always ask the question, why do I want to own a home? That's that, To me, that is a really critical thing because I find that hmm. right now uh, when people get discouraged when their offers are not accepted and uh, because they continue to make offers, it's more like they're chasing the market. And, uh, you know, Kobe Bryant once made a remark. He said, you know, the best games I play is when I let the game come to me. And uh, the aspect here is is to be really centered and grounded on what it is that you want. Because if you're chasing after a house just to get it accepted, you're going to end up settling for something that you probably may not want. So my first rule is to is to try to get deeper into a little bit about why homeownership is important. And to me, my why is very important. I grew up in the projects. Uh, I grew up on welfare. Uh, We were evicted several times before we went into government housing. Mm. Uh, My mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was 12 years old, and uh, she died when I was 18 years old. And so, yeah, and so to me, well, thank you. uh, Homeownership is something that's very um, sacred. It's stable. It's something that and I use sacred not in a religious terms, but a sacred in the term of a place of abode, a place of a hearth where I can be with my family, where I have that space. And uh, and so for me, it's really a big deal. I, I, you know, so it's the why. I mean, right now, the median net wealth of a renter is five thousand uh, dollars. The median net wealth of a homeowner is two hundred thirty thousand. So it's a forty six times difference. So there are some very um, they're not only financial, but there's also this underbelly of homeownership, which, you know, there's a survey done that showed that if you own a home, there's 50% chance you'll get divorced and children do better in school and they have lower incidence of asthma. So there's all these things as to answer as to why is it important. Then once you get the why down, then you go for it, right? And if you can buy the home responsibly, then you put together a strategy, and that means uh, making sure you have an ironclad loan approval first. You have a great real estate professional. And uh, together we work as a team to collaborate on it. We have people in here all the time to get their offers accepted that are putting down 5% and 3%. And they're against cash offers and they still get accepted. Well, one thing that's funny, we have a friend, uh, as you mentioned that, it, it reminded me that moving into this area, you know, his wife is uh, expecting a, a child. And yeah. he said he had put down offers on like the first three homes and they were gone before he could, <laughs> you know, right, barely right. get the offer in. 
And so he said he decided his approach would be different on that fourth one. So he wrote this lovely letter to the real estate agent saying, you know, I'm trying to start a family. This will be our first home and all so forth and so on. He said it just didn't matter. <laughs> you know, so I don't know uh, if you have any advice for young homeowners that are just starting out. Um, oh. You know, how do they prepare? You know, there are probably things that they really need to be thinking about and doing before they actually even think about putting that. Yeah, yeah, let's that's that. So that is a great question. That's the heart of the matter right there. Mm-hmm. And that is how putting together a strategy that can be used to really uh, make it so that it's going to happen. And the first thing that you do is, number one, is to find a lender to get pre-approved with. And not not just a regular pre-approval, but an ironclad, what I call an ironclad pre-approval. That means that income is checked, assets are checked, down payment funds, if you're putting down a down payment, you know, whether they're gift funds. I mean, have it all, the wheels fully greased so you know exactly that you're 100% approved. Because if you're 100% approved and you don't have a house to sell, that means there's no contingencies. And chances are pretty good that you're almost like a cash offer, not quite, but really close. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to the real estate agent to present the, the um, that's number two is to have an agent that really presents the offer well. And, um, and, and the, the agent is able to find out from the agent, the other, the listing agent as to what the seller wants. A lot of times they don't pay attention to what's important to the seller. If the seller is only interested in um, getting money for the property and wants to move out, you may not get your offer accepted because the cash offer is going to come in and they're going to take it. But if you've got somebody who wants to leave what what I call a neighborhood legacy where they care about the people coming in to their home and how it's going to affect their neighborhood, then that's different. Now you've got a shot. Now you've got to say, well, now it depends on who actually is going to be moving into my home. And people are discouraging the letters that, that people have been writing in the past. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't get your offer accepted. It might be important to the seller that they don't want an appraisal contingency. So you can waive it. The seller may say, well, I want to know that I can, that they can get approved within 12 days. So instead of having a 17 day loan contingency, maybe put a 10 day on it. So there's a lot of things that you can do. And then the third thing, which most people don't use, but which is really critical, is to use me, is to use your lender and say, call the listing agent and say, and that's when I would say, well, I'm working with Celeste and Celeste is ironclad, pre-approved. I can brag about you. I can brag about my clients, how well qualified they are. Mm -hmm. And then I ask the the listing agent, what do we need to do to get this offer on the top, uh, top of the stack? so that um, the offer is accepted. And, and that's when a lot of times they'll ask questions. They'll say, well, are they qualified? What's the credit score? You know, and then I can tell them and I can really um, emphasize how important it is to take this offer. Right. Well, you know, the flip side of the younger couple is, you know, older Americans, I think also are looking at, yeah, we may have equity in our house and hey, we are going to make a nice profit, but around here you can't find anything for you know under a certain amount. So, would you recommend to older uh, couples, families that they maybe think about downsizing? Oh, uh, sure. I don't know if that's yeah. good advice in a pandemic, but you know when you might be stuck at home, <laughs> you know. But yeah, I'm just, 
just curious what you, what your thoughts are on that. Oh, that's that's I, that's ex- that's wonderful because the one of the taglines that we use that we that we do our business by here, Celeste, is transforming lives through home ownership. Mm-hmm. We believe that a, a, a person's life is different from going from renting to buying. Mm-hmm. And we also believe that a person's life is different when they're in the right environment in the right house. Like I'll give you an example. I have a friend who wanted to buy a home, a bigger home, because they had more more kids coming. Uh, they, they wanted a place for all their grandkids to come. Mm-hmm. And so I remember it was so funny when, the, when, when she was telling me about it. She said, yeah, we went to look at these homes, and I found this one home, and it had a great kitchen. And so basically what happened is she bought the kitchen and they threw in the house. And, uh, and what's happened is, is that because the kitchen is bigger, now she cooks more. The kids are more in the kitchen. There's more family and community happening. I mean, the, her life is transformed simply because the kitchen is larger. And yeah. that's what you really got to pay attention to. Home ownership is amazing what it can do for your life. I, I think that is so true. And, uh, want to hear and talk a little bit more about that right now. We're going to go to a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the pandemic and how that has also affected home ownership. We'll be back right after this. Oh, you bet. A lot of things have come to a screeching halt due to COVID-19, but you should know that the court system in Tennessee is still open and holding in-person hearings for orders of protection and other types of abuse cases. If you have a hearing date, double check on where your hearing will be held. If you need assistance on an order of protection or temporary restraining order, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443 or visit our website at www.las.org. So welcome back. You're listening to the Celeste Stein Show on BBS Radio Station One, which can be found on iHeartRadio. And I have real estate expert John Mallet, who is giving us some really, really valuable advice here today on what property owners should be thinking about during a global pandemic in terms of buying and selling. And so, John, I wanted to ask about... um, with the pandemic, um, are you are you getting any information on how that may impact us? Let's say we have to have another shutdown uh, in September due to the Delta variant. How might that impact the housing market? Seems like people weren't buying and selling when the, the last shutdown occurred last year. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, in, in March, uh, the end of March and April and into May, the housing market was really very um, depressed. It was it was not good at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, people had to learn how to be able to work within the environment of a pandemic. And uh, it was considered essential. It wasn't considered essential at the beginning. But then uh, around... Um, uh, April, it was considered an essential service. And so agents were able to go out and, and show homes, but they had to change how they did it. They had to have gloves and mask on. Uh, the seller could not be in the property. Uh, there, had to be, there had to be an appointment and there had to be certain ways that they had to show the property. Well, once they got to that point, then it just broke loose. Then uh, people were going, you know what? I'm not going to work. I'm not in the office right now. And my home is not really sufficient for a work environment and for a family environment. 
And so I've got to make a change. And so all of a sudden, the demand for housing just rocketed. And it wasn't only because of the change in, in the pandemic of the way people work, but it was basically saying, look, man, this is the time for us to buy our home, even during a pandemic. And, and the, um, the market just rocketed. I mean, uh, prices are up from this time last year by 15%. That's a huge increase. In some areas, it's as much as 28%. So people were beginning to really understand the, I think, personally, we're, we're really understanding uh, the critical nature, of the, the, the sacred nature of home ownership. that they're going to be there for a, for a while. Why not make it something that they want to be in? And I think that a lot of that happens to us with people that were renting, when people were renting, they found that that environment was not what they wanted if they had to work from home. And right. so I, I believe that there was a very good sized push that went for uh, a high demand. And what happened at the same time, as demand began to grow uh, because of the subprime crisis, the, the building of new homes still has not caught up. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, there became a shortage of homes. And when that happens, then obviously you know, prices are going to rise. Right. Let's also talk about the moratorium. I don't know if that's been lifted yet, but where people weren't having to pay, I guess, their rent and would not be thrown out of their homes, you know, due to the circumstances we found ourselves in with the pandemic. So have you heard, is that going to be, I haven't heard anything about whether. You know, I I haven't either, but I know that it, 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 uh, it's, it's, uh, it ends, it ended in July. Mm-hmm. And so I'll be interested to see what's going to happen. I would imagine that there's going to be some kind of an extension. I can't imagine there not being uh, based on the variant that's coming out right now. Right. Well, what uh, would you say to, you know, the fact that we often hear about the real estate bubble and mm-hmm. that that bubble might soon burst? I don't know how much time we have a year, year and a half. I don't know. Um, don't have a crystal ball, but can yeah. you uh, explain what that means to people in layman's terms when people? Oh, you bet. Real estate. Yeah. yeah, that's what your question is. The essence of what people are asking right now. It's everybody's asking that question. It's a great question. And really what the uh, there's four foundations or four pillars that you look at to identify whether or not you're in a bubble. Number one is the interest rates uh, for every one percent that rates decrease. There's a half a million more people they can qualify to buy a home. So it's a huge number. And uh, right now rates are at an all time low. They're at historic lows as they have been for the last couple of years. And so when that happens, you're automatically gonna have more people coming into the market uh, than there are properties. The second thing you look at is underwriting standards. During the uh, subprime crisis, there was irresponsible underwriting going on. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, uh, people were able to buy homes without proving their income. And uh, when they did that, they got they got these loans that were little time bombs, I call them, little nuclear bombs, that uh, when they adjusted, uh, the payments almost doubled. And so as a result of that, obviously, people would have to foreclose. They could not make their payments. And uh, today, that's not the case. Today, you have to have pay steps. Today, people are buying based on their income qualifying. Mm-hmm. And so you've got interest rates and you've got uh, um um, you know, underwriting standards, which have been elevated quite a bit. And then, of course, the third one is is the job market. Right now, the 
the job market is going crazy, right? There's more jobs than there are people to fill. And so obviously incomes are very strong. And then uh, you've got the demand versus supply, uh, which is the fourth one is, is what's that, what's the inventory look like? And the inventory is low. So you're going to have a, a high demand. You're not going to have a lot of supply. And so the, what we call the demand curve is going to show prices increasing. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what you ask is a good one because it doesn't mean that prices will continue like this. You know, the incomes cannot keep up with the rising prices, in my opinion. Our work, our studies, everything that we've done points to that there'll be a moderation. People are kind of comparing the subprime crisis to the bubble bursting as to that's what would happen now. And that's not going to happen, in my opinion. I think that they'll moderate. I think prices will come down or they'll moderate, but I don't think that we'll see an implosion. Right. One thing, uh, and talking about how much home you can afford, you alluded to that. I remember when I bought my first uh, home, which was a a little condo, um, I remember that they, you know, my real estate agent went uh, and said, you can afford this much home. And I'm like looking going, oh, I can? You know, I I thought it was a a bit more than what I thought I could afford, you know? Right. And as as a first time home buyer, you're really uh, you know wondering if you've always rented, can I afford this? And so, would you elaborate on how much people need to do a little homework on their own in terms of what they can really afford? Because you don't want to get in a situation where you can't afford the home or you can't live the quality of life that you're used to living um, because now you have a mortgage payment and that's all you can pretty much afford. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. That's a, that's a big one because it's easier to get a loan approval today, in my opinion, than it has ever been. Not, not kind of the subprime crisis, but mm-hmm. now it's easier. You know, the, the down payment can be a hundred percent gift. It didn't used to be that way with conventional right. Absolutely. I remember. Yeah. So so a lot of times you can actually get a loan for more than you can actually afford. Mm -hmm. You really can. And so your question is a great one. That's why it's important to know what it is that you feel comfortable that you want to buy the home responsibly. And to do that, you got to have an idea of what your mortgage payment will be. And if you're comfortable with that, how is it in relation to your rent payment that you're paying now? And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because sometimes you can go with a higher what they call debt to income ratio. In other words, if your debt to income ratio is 43%, it means that every gross dollar you make, 43% of that goes to housing. And uh, for some people, that might be too high. For other people, it may not. It may be somebody that drives for Uber or for Lyft on a part-time basis where I can't use their income, but the income is there. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there's uh, there's different there's different strategies. It's a very individual situation. Right. You really have to look at that. Like, do you have student loan debt? Do you have, uh, you know, just day-to-day expenses? Some people don't even really know how to do a budget. I've tried to teach my children, you know, hey, you need to write down everything you're spending from entertainment to getting your hair done to going to the dry cleaners. What are you really spending? Because, that's usually not going to be down on that piece of paper when they're looking at debt to income ratio. It's the big expenses, yeah. obviously. Yeah. 
not going to be those things like groceries that you're spending um, monthly and, and yeah. monthly, if you will. So I think that's a great point that uh, you really have to be comfortable yourself in terms right. of what you really feel you can put out and you really need to do your own budget. Also. Yeah, that's right. And, and there's one, there's one aspect that, it, that you, that you're bring up that I think is really important. And that is what I call the drive to buy. And uh, I've been in situations where uh, clients, they, they call me up and they go, you know what? We were looking at this house over the weekend and, and Celeste will always start out by saying, I know we can't qualify but we're looking to see whether or not we can qualify. And uh, you would be amazed at what happens as soon as they get a vision that they can buy, then the drive to buy kicks in. And I've had couples, I had one couple who came in and uh, they said, we want to buy home. And I looked at everything, their income, credit, you know, jobs. And I said, no, you're not ready. It's you, you won't qualify right now. And they said, what do we need to do? And I gave them a strategy Mm -hmm. and, uh, and a year later, Celeste, they came back and uh, they qualified. And I said, well, what did you do? And they said, well, we pulled a trailer onto our parents' backyard. We lived in that. We paid off all our debt. We asked for raises. We got better jobs. And so this, this drive to buy, when people get the, the notion that they really can buy, because you know, there's all these myths out there that you got to have 20% down. Well, if you're going to buy a $300,000 home, you got to come up with 60 grand. That's a no deal right there. Right there, I'm going to say, no, I can't do it, right? Right. But when, but when I find out that I can put down 3%, then I'm going, wait a minute now. I only need 9000 I can do that. I can figure that out one way or another. Yeah. You know, one way I can do that. And so this drive to buy, as soon as it kicks in, then I've seen people really step up and say, no, I can make this happen. Yeah. And that's when their life is transformed. Yeah. Well, and I think some of that depends on the type of uh, mortgage you get, whether it's conventional or FHA. And so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the different types of loans and how that impacts the interest rate you'll be paying. We'll be back right after this. In relationships, there are some obvious signs you can use to spot someone who might be abusive. First, they have a tendency to want to rush into a relationship. They may also show signs of jealousy and mistrust, and you could find they expect you to be perfect and will try to cut you off from other important relationships. They could also be abusive towards animals and children. To learn more about the signs of dangerous individuals and how you can identify and avoid unhealthy relationships, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443. And welcome back to the Celeste Stein Show. I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein, and you're listening to BBS Radio Station One, which can be found on iHeartRadio. We're talking about real estate and home buying with real estate expert, John Mallett. John, um, let's go back to what we were just talking about in terms of conventional versus uh, FHA loans that you can get. Um, can you explain the difference and who can qualify for what? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, you got it. Uh, the FHA is um, a Federal Housing Administration. This came out a long time ago for people to help them get into a home. And uh, FHA usually is reserved for individuals who have lower credit scores and uh, they're first-time home buyers. Um, and generally speaking, it's really based more on credit. The lower scores tend to go to, to FHA. 
Uh, you can do FHA financing down to 620 uh, credit score or even as low as 580. So a lot of times uh, the FHA is the right way to go depending on your profile. Conventional are, are loans that are backed by what's referred to as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. These are government agencies that basically insure these, these loans. And uh, in these types of properties, uh, the with FHA, your mortgage insurance is a little bit higher than it is on conventional financing. And so um, uh, on FHA, you have mortgage insurance, you have upfront mortgage insurance, which is a big difference between conventional financing. Upfront mortgage insurance with FHA is that they pool their own loans against uh, defaults. So you pay a you pay a fee about one and a half to one and three quarter points up front uh, that's put into the loan amount, one and three quarters actually, that's put into the loan amount. And that is there uh, to insure uh, against default so that the, the FHA fund manages its own risk itself. Uh, so it's a little bit more expensive a loan to get into. Conventional, on the other hand, is much different. There's no upfront mortgage insurance. There is monthly mortgage insurance, but uh, with conventional, your mortgage insurance, as soon as you hit a certain loan to value or you're, you've got enough equity in your property, then the mortgage insurance goes away automatically. Right. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is if you're kind of a first time buyer, um, don't have the best in credit or don't have a lot of cash lying around, you should go with the FHA and mm-hmm. The conventional, if you've been in your home for a while, you have equity, you have money set aside where you can put that larger down payment down might be the better way to go because you get a better rate at the end of the day. Is that right? Well, yes and no. The the FHA has higher mortgage insurance up front and monthly mortgage insurance. um, And their rates tend to be just a little bit lower. And uh, with FHA, the beauty of FHA is, is you can get what's called a very large lender credit that will help you pay for your closing costs. You'll have to take a little bit higher rate, but they have very large lender credits that will pay for your closing costs. With conventional financing, uh, Celeste, if you're a first-time home buyer, it's also a great way to go. Uh, you can do it with as little as 3% down, actually. Uh, but your credit usually has to be a little bit better. Uh, the mortgage insurance is not as not as high on a monthly basis. Uh, the rates are a little bit higher on those loans. But generally speaking, if you can qualify for conventional the first time, that's really the better way to go. Mm-hmm. So now let's ask um, the next question. What type of credit score should you have? And if it's not at that, whatever that n- magic number is, what do you need to do? to get your number right. You talked about strategy earlier, but what are we looking at in terms of a credit score? So those people who might be interested in buying a house, they they can kind of know where they should be at. And that's a great question because that's another myth. That's a myth that says you have to have great credit to to, to buy your first home or to buy a home in any event. And that's just simply not true. I mean, FHA, like we talked about, in some cases, with some lenders, you can get a score down to 580. Wow. And yeah, you can. I, I, I know mean, that. That's information. Yeah. Information. Yeah. <laughs> sure, you can do that. Now, you're a little bit limited because there are only so many lenders that will do that. You know, generally speaking, you've got a 620 or a 640 score. The greatest thing about credit, the reason why your question is so important, 
The greatest thing about credit is, is you can make it better. It's not permanent. And when people look at their credit report, they become intimidated. In fact, they don't even sometimes want to even pull a credit report because they don't want to look at it. And uh, the, the facts are is, is that you can make it really good if you want to. You simply have to make an adjustment and, uh, you know, any collection accounts, you can clear those up. You'd be amazed at how quickly you can turn your credit report around. I had a client who had a score of 575 and in six months, it's probably about six to seven months, the score went to 795. Wow. That's really? Yeah, you know. Huge <laughs> right, exactly. And so what are some of the things that you recommend that people do to, to you know, turn that around? And how, how much do they really need to, to do that? Because sometimes time is of the essence. Kids are starting back to school or they right. need to get into a house for a reason. So you're mm-hmm. saying if you can't, you might be able to qualify, but it would be better if... Fill, fill yeah. Out. <laughs> yeah, if your score, it'd be better if your score was a little bit higher. So that means you look at your credit report, contact a lender. It's best, it, the most inexpensive way to do it is contact a lender who will take time with you to look at your situation. Uh, some lenders will, some lenders won't. We have a, a pretty much policy with our, and culture in our company that says, if they come to me, we're going to do everything we can there. If it's a, if it's a, Fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollar loan that's just important to somebody who has a million dollar. So we sit down with a with our clients, or we call them family members, and we'll pull their credit sometimes free of charge, and we'll go through the credit report line by line, and say, well, this one needs to show that you're going to pay it on time. This is a collection account that was maybe a medical collection uh, that they owe fifty dollars on. Well, you right there, I'll call the collection agency and say. Will you delete this? The operative word is to delete it. That means expunge it from the credit report as if it was never there. And, uh, you know, I'll say, if, if our clients will pay this today, will you delete it? And 50% of the time, Celeste will say yes. Well, right there, when you start deleting accounts, your credit score is going to rocket, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so making your payments on time, it's just a matter of getting with somebody that can coach you a little bit to give you an idea of what you need to do. It might be making your payments on time. It might be opening some additional credit. It might be uh, uh, using somebody else's credit. I have a, I had a client, a couple, a married couple, and they, they were just recently married. They have different uh, credit. Uh, the wife's credit was better than the husband's. And so uh, the wife put her husband on her credit card accounts. And so he got his credit increased a lot because of that because now his credit was associated with somebody's credit was paying on time now of course you got to make your payments on time and do all the basic things but there are a lot of things you can do to tweak it thanks for that great wife huh yeah that's right <laughs> yes that's that sounds uh sounds like something that a lot of people probably don't think about that they can do little things like that. I know we've done that with our, our children in terms of giving them uh, that first credit card, but we, we basically, you know, <laughs> we gave it and then we took it away, you know, <laughs> so that we had it and uh, you know, maybe pay for things here or there just to make sure that you establish that, that good credit. So those are little yeah. things that certainly, one can do. Another thing I wanted to ask about about uh, was 
you know, when we talk about the benefits of home ownership, I don't think we've touched on things like tax deductions. And uh, I mean, we've talked a little bit about more space, uh, being able to um, actually quarantine and seclude yourself from others by having that additional space, you know, which yeah, right now yeah. is kind of important to people. Or when you have to sit on Zoom calls all day, you know, you don't right. want little Sally or Johnny running behind you in the background and <laughs> all of those things that tend yeah, to happen yeah. these days. Um, it's, it's, it is what it is, but um, what, what, what are some of the things um, like that, that are also benefits taxes. Tell us about that tax. Well, the taxes, there's some benefit to it. Uh, if you're uh, based on the last, uh, the, the, uh, the 2018 uh, tax laws that came out, uh, they, they, you don't have the kind of deduction that you used to have as a homeowner. They kind of equal the playing field. So if you're a single individual and you have a, a loan that's greater than $150,000, then you'll be able to take advantage of it tax-wise. Uh, if you're a married individual, individuals, and uh, the loan amount is like $450,000 or higher, then you can probably take advantage of getting itemizing. It's called itemizing your taxes. So you can itemize your deductions so that you pay a little bit lower in taxes. So if you're in a church or you, you have um, charity donations or things like that, you can also deduct those. But with the new uh, tax law out, the standard deduction has been put so high that a lot of times it doesn't make a difference whether tax-wise, whether you own a home or not. Mm-hmm. So good things to know because... That was the dream early on. Hey, I can deduct all this interest I'm paying, you know, and and a lot of that has changed. So in speaking of interest rates, I know they've been historically low for a while. Are we starting to see those creep up or do you think they might start to increase soon? And does that mean uh, it's it might be a good time to buy? Yeah, definitely. Well, and that's what people are feeling, Celeste. That's exactly what they're saying is I want to get in before rates rise because as rates rise, I know that I may not be able to qualify. You know, I'm going to price myself out of the market. And uh, I think my, my opinion now, now understand every time I talk about interest rates, I'm always wrong. Right. So <laughs> that's important to understand. Otherwise, you're not, not. my husband, and I always say we're the gauge. Like if we think about refinancing or think about buying another home, rates start to rise. So you know, we say to yeah. our, pay attention now. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but I think that I think that rates are going to rise. I, I believe that if there's going to have stimulus come in and there's going to be uh, some more stimulus by the government for infrastructure and things like that, I think at some point rates will have to go up. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're going to rock it, but mm-hmm. I do think that rates will rise. I don't know how much. Uh, right now, we're seeing that rates are actually at, at one of their lowest points unexpectedly. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, Celeste, I was saying, well, rates are going to rise at some point, and they haven't yet. I think that they will uh, within the next 18 months. Our, our research and the studies that we do, we think that rates will rise, even if it's a minimal part, uh, we think that they'll rise at least a half to a point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You want to talk at all about prime rate in you know, how that's tied to prime, prime versus variable, uh, yeah. variable yeah. versus fixed rate, I meant. Right, right. So you've got, you've got adjustable rate mortgages, which are okay. They're not my favorite. 
but uh, adjustable rate mortgages tend to be a little bit lower than a 30-year fixed simply because the term of the loan is shorter, right? So if you have an adjustable rate mortgage that, that's where you have a guaranteed rate for seven years, after seven years, it rolls to whatever the existing, whatever the market rate is at the time. And uh, the reason why you'd get something like that is because the rate's a little bit lower. In my opinion, the rate is not low enough to offset that risk. I really am a champion for 30-year fixed rate mortgages. Mm -hmm. uh, there are European countries that don't have fixed rate mortgages. They're all adjustables. I think a fixed rate mortgage is one of the greatest things that you can get because you know exactly what your payment will be. And the 30-year the fixed rate are tied to what's called the 10-year uh, bond uh, and uh, they're, they're tied to the bond market as to what is going to be happening more over a longer period of time. So uh, the 30-year fix is really a longer term. Uh, when people price it, when the market prices it, it's priced based on um, the next 10 years. So it's a, it's a longer horizon than it would be for the adjustable rate mortgage. So uh, the adjustable rate mortgages are on indices like uh, what's called the um, – uh, the average of the T-bill or the LIBOR, uh, things of that nature. 30-year fix is based more on longer-term um, investments and in debt instruments like bonds. Mm -hmm. I remember there were several people kind of before the market crashed in 2007 who bought those mortgages with the balloon payments. You know, it was like yeah. for so long. And then right. after 10 years or so, uh, it might shoot up because the rate was tied to prime plus whatever, you know, yes. based on mm -hmm. your credit. Right. Um, and I know a lot of people came upside down, you know, in their homes with yeah. that. Um, yes. So I'm not even sure. Are they still doing that? I haven't really heard a lot of advertisement for that type of thing that they were really pushing before 2007. Yeah, right now that's right now that the, the emphasis currently is on 30 year fixed. Uh, that's where you get your best pricing. It's where you get no cost loans. It's where you really lenders are really more comfortable with that loan than they are uh, an adjustable rate mortgage right now. Right. Uh, the adjustables were okay, but they're not, the, the fixed rate is really the very best way to go. Right. Yeah. I remember a few years ago too, I think under, um, I don't know, I think it was Bush senior that the interest rates, I mean, they were extremely high. It's like, I, I, I tell people, I remember when, you know, those rates were starting at like eight and 9% and going yeah, up. Right. And people are so spoiled now. I just would hate to see if, if those yeah. start going up like they did then, you know, I mean, because you got to think for every dollar you're spending, there's going to be interest attached to that. That's, dollar. Right. that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and so. that, that's a good point. So that on a 30 year fix, if the rates are really rising high, you may have to take an adjustable rate mortgage uh, because those rates are a lot lower in that environment. So the, the short-term money banks are okay with because they know that they only have to hold the money for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And they'll match those with credit card accounts and short investment vehicles. Mm -hmm. uh, the long, the 30-year, when, when the rates get high, it gets really uncomfortable. So that's a very good point. Now, here's the interesting thing about right now is that with the low rates on the 30-year fixed or less, uh, is it's interesting to note that in real terms, if you have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, 
the rate actually goes down over time. Your rate will stay the same, but according to real prices rising, uh, the the rate actually decreases mm-hmm. uh, based on uh, inflation. So the 30-year, in my opinion, right now, at least in this market, is the very best way to go. You wouldn't say a 15? I mean, I know. Oh, I love uh, 15, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you can afford it. If you can you afford it. Oh, here? yeah. Yeah, you pay, tw- you pay a half the interest. On a $200,000 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, you're going to pay about $180,000 in interest on a 30-year fix. If you take a 15, it's about $90,000. It's a huge difference. I mean, I love, I love a 15-year fix if it's, if you're comfortable with the payment. Right. You're able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That is probably a wise move, but you know, it, it it really, like we were saying earlier in the conversation, we really need to look at your overall budget and making sure that you could afford to do it. With rates being so low, if you can fix it <laughs> at a particular oh, yeah. for 15 years, instead of, I mean, sure. you can also get a 20, a 25 year old, yep. a 25 year rate. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be uh, something to, to look at because of the amount of money it saves you. Correct. Correct. We're going to now, take what's a interesting- break again. Um, hold that thought. And we're we're going to mm-hmm. take a break. And when we okay. come back, we're going to talk about investment real estate. We'll be back right after this. We're going to, um, we're, we're having, um, between, I guess, partners is expected to rise by 20% during and coming out of the quarantine shutdown. There are steps you can take to protect yourself. Don't wait for an abuser to hurt you. Call the police if you feel threatened. If your abuser begins to stalk you, it might be time for an order of protection. Once you get it, carry it with you and show it to police if you must call them. For more information, Call the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443. Hi, you're listening to the Celeste Stein Show on BBS Radio Station 1, which can be found on iHeartRadio. And I am talking today about real estate investing as well as, is this a good time to buy a home? I have with me John Mallett, who is talking about real estate investment investments right now. When, when we talk about um, home buying is one thing, but when we talk about investing in real estate, would you recommend um, that people think about investing as well with rates being so low? Yes, uh, Celeste. I think that uh, if you can responsibly do it, I would definitely uh, pick up a rental property. I, I mean, they can provide... You know, there's a saying uh, for for people who are renting that uh, whether you're renting or you're buying, you're still buying real estate. It's just that when you rent, you're buying it for somebody else. And so when you have the opportunity to have a big enough down payment to get an investment property, it's a great way to uh, to, to really, it, it doesn't really supplement your income so much because um, sometimes the rents will equal the payments that you're going to make on the property. But what it does for you is over time, somebody else is buying your real estate for you. And uh, eventually what you're going to have is you're going to have a lot of equity in that property so that you can refinance it to a much lower uh, payment or you can sell the property and you can uh, buy up to larger properties. Uh, There's no question about it that investment uh, is a great way to go as long as you have a strategy and you have a big enough down payment. 
Mm-hmm. What about um, some people might think, well, maybe I could pick up a property overseas where it might be cheaper. Would you recommend something like that right now? I don't know yeah. what the investment market is like uh, in other countries. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think we obviously have to take or factor into that what's happening on, on the scale uh, globally with the pandemic. Yeah, I would uh, I would stay away from that. Uh, I probably don't think that that's the the best thing that you can do. I think that if you work with an investment fund that specializes in doing that, then that's not a bad way to go. Uh, The issue with overseas investments is, is you don't have any control on what's going on. You're so far away uh, that when people realize that, you know, they can do some things that they're not really comfortable with. I have a client, a family member of our, uh, of, of our people that we work with, where she is from Colombia, and she lives in the United States, but she is always going back to see her family in Colombia. She bought a condo in Colombia. Now for her, it makes perfect sense because she can go back. She has family members that can be there to support it. And uh, you have to have a little bit more of an infrastructure when you're buying overseas of people that can handle and manage the property. But when you talk about affordability, there are great places everywhere in the United States that you can buy. Uh, it's always best to buy in the area in which you live. Uh, that's always kind of a, uh, a theme that most real estate investors like. But that does, that's not always the case. You can buy properties in the Midwest that might be uh, 150, 200,000, and that you can put enough money down and you can have positive rent immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, the key, though, is them buying the home for you. That's the key to the whole thing. Right. When someone is going from, say, renting to home ownership, what are some of the other expenses that they may not be thinking about that they're going to also have to come up with? That was something I meant to ask you earlier. Um, I know that that can be problematic. I didn't know I was going to have to pay this or that. You know, and we, in fact, that happened uh, to us with our current home. There was a a fee we had no idea we were to pay because we moved from the city to the county and uh-huh. a new fee we'd never had to pay before. And it was yeah. what they call a step system, you know, for the sewage. Yeah. And we had no idea <laughs> that even existed and it wasn't written into our real estate. Contract. Uh-huh. So what do you do? Uh, let, let's talk about all those expenses, you know, yeah. a hidden fees, if you will, that you didn't know you might have to pay. Yeah. Well, a lot of it comes, uh, sometimes it can come from taxes. There might be an additional tax bill, a supplemental tax bill that'll come. Uh, There's going to be repairs. It depends on the home that you're buying. If it's a relatively newer home, then, you know, you're not going to have the maintenance that you would on buying an older home. So you've got to kind of work that into the equation uh, and see whether or not the home uh, has any utilities in it? Uh, does it have a washer and dryer, refrigerator? When you move into your home, are these items that you're going to have to buy? So obviously, you've got to put together some kind of a of a budget for it, so you're not taken by surprise. Um, and that's why it's important to have a payment that you can feel good about and responsibly pay, because sometimes things will come up. That's why it's always a good idea to have some kind of a reserve. Mm-hmm. I want to say, as we prepare to kind of wrap up here, um, according to data that I found uh, from the 19, 2019 Survey of Consumer 
finances, it shows that longstanding and substantial wealth disparities between families in different racial and ethnic groups were little changed since the last survey in 2016. It says the typical white family has eight times the wealth of the typical black family and five times the wealth of the typical Hispanic family. How much do you think home ownership weighs into this issue? Great question. Uh, That's uh, really the issue of what we call intergenerational wealth where uh, homes can be passed down that's one aspect. Actually, uh, the survey that you're referring to, uh, actually, it goes back to 1968. The, uh, the, the level of home ownership for uh, Black Americans or African Americans is the same as it was when the civil rights law was passed in 68. There's about a 29-point difference between uh, Black home ownership and white home ownership. Yeah, that's... Uh you know, quite, uh, quite a gap. So gap. You know, what do you say to uh, those, you know, minority homeowners or people who, I mean, should they try to hold on to their home? Should they be thinking about buying a home uh, right now? That's a great question. Right now, depending on the, depending on the studies that you look at, uh, it goes from 1.7 million to 3 million African-Americans that can buy today, and most of them don't know it. Wow. It's a, it's a big number, Celeste. And uh, one of my stands that I take is to ignite a home buying revolution in the uh, African-American, the black community, because there are so many opportunities to buy, but all these myths are out there. Fannie Mae did a survey that showed that they surveyed renters and 45% of the renters said that you got to have 20% down to buy a home. And uh, disproportionately, a large number of that 45% were people of color. And uh, that's because they grew up in a rental. Uh, there's a 15% greater likelihood that a person who grows up in a home that's owned by her parents will buy that home, will buy it, will have their own property. And uh, when you grow up in a rental, your outlook on home ownership is totally different. Uh, you know, you can't put a nail in the wall because you're not going to get the deposit back. Well, right there, that tells a child that, hey, we may not be here for a while. Or when rents rise, we have to move. Or, you know, in, so- in some cases, uh, uh, the parent will say, well, you know, we have to fix the toilet because the landlord's too cheap to fix it on their own. And that doesn't happen in all cases. But it's much different from somebody who grows up in a home that's owned that says, oh, what color would you like your room to be? We'll paint it. we got to fix up the yard. So the discussion about the stability and the issue of home ownership is totally different. And what my objective is and my passion is to be able to educate because there was a survey that was done, and this is really interesting to me, a survey that was done that said, well, we understand why there's maybe about a 20-point difference between black home ownership and white home ownership based on income disparity or whatever it might be. But we can't account for around 10 to 12%. We don't know what that is. Well, in my opinion, that difference is is educating, is really helping people understand that they can buy. That's a And having somebody that will actually take the time to sit down and say, this is how it works. Right. This has been wonderful. Great information, John. 
And uh, I thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, that's wonderful news on how we can close the wealth gap. And um, I hope we'll come back again as, as the market's changing and what have you, we'll come back again and, and catch up with you down the road. Thank you so good. much for listening and thank you so much for joining us, John. We'll be back in two weeks with leadership advice from former Tractor Supply President Joe Scarlett. Please be sure to tune in for that at 11. Thank you so much for listening today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.